architects have to become um, more than just designers of uh, two-dimensional facades or, uh, or three-dimensional architectural objects. Uh, we have to become designers of ecosystems, uh, systems of both ecology uh, and economy that channel not only the flow of people through our cities and buildings, but also the flow of resources like uh, heat, energy, uh, waste, and water uh, into these sort of uh, uh, perpetual motion engines that sort of uh, stop seeing uh, our presence, like the human presence on planet Earth, as a sort of a detrimental to uh, our ecosystem, but actually tries to sort of integrate and incorporate our consumption patterns and our leftovers into, uh, into our natural environment. The reason for this sort of expanded role of, uh, of the architect is uh, because of the, the atmosphere you capture in this image. Um, it, was, it was taken at the COP15, the United Nations Conference on Climate Change in Copenhagen a year and a half ago. Uh, and as you can see uh, on, uh, you know, Sarkozy and Brown and Merkel and even Obama, it wasn't exactly a party. Um, it was like a, it was a complete failure. Uh, essentially, none of the goals that had been established for the, for the meeting were met. And the general sort of discussion about sustainability was sort of drowning in this sort of general misconception that sustainability is a question of uh, how much of our existing quality of life are we prepared to sacrifice in order to afford becoming sustainable. Uh, almost like this sort of um, Protestant idea that it has to hurt to do good. Um, but sustainability can't be like a, a, some kind of a, a moral sacrifice or a political dilemma or even like a, a, a philanthropical cause. It has to be a design challenge. Um, so when we were sort of recently asked to do the Danish Pavilion for the uh, Shanghai World Expo that was focusing on sustainable cities, uh, we tried to ask ourselves if there was another sustainability than this sort of sad, depressing one. Um, we tried to ask ourselves if we could find examples where sustainable cities and buildings actually increase life quality. So we, we decided to make the pavilion as a sort of condensation of how Danish cities through their sustainable designs actually increase life quality. Uh, we conceived uh, of the pavilion as a sort of loop of a Danish street, complete with the blue bicycle lanes of, uh, of Copenhagen. Because uh, in Copenhagen, 37% of the uh, Copenhageners commute by bike. So people visiting could actually feel how cool it is to ride a bike through the city instead of sitting in a traffic jam or looking endlessly for a parking spot. Also in, uh, in uh, Copenhagen, our harbor water has become so clean that you can swim in it. So you don't have to like take uh, the bus for hours uh, to go to the Hamptons. You can actually jump uh, in, the, in the port. Uh, so at the heart of the pavilion, we allowed the visitors to experience on their own bodies how clean, uh, if not how cold, the Danish harbor water is. Um, and, uh, and in the middle of this sort of a uh, harbor bath, we uh, decided to place uh, the little mermaid of Denmark, uh, not a, a copy of the mermaid. We actually moved her to China. Uh, we had to wrest her out of the hands of the Danish equivalent of the Tea Party, who was trying to, to pass a law specifically against moving the mermaid. Uh, we had to get her through Chinese customs. Um, and, uh, and there she is. Um, in, in her absence, uh, we invited the Chinese artist Ai Weiwei uh, to sort of uh, install um, uh, uh, an installation. He installed uh, a Chinese surveillance camera. Uh, it's the same Chinese surveillance camera that the Chinese state has installed in front of his house. Um, this one, however, uh, it was part of an installation he called the Mermaid Exchange. It was transmitting a live image to a giant flat screen so that the, the Copenhagen tourist that went in rain would sort of... 
see that she was all right. Um, but sort of more importantly, for the six months of the duration of the expo, it became like this sort of a, the, the only sort of um, a TV feed from China to the rest of the world, uh, 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 transmitting a sort of a uncensored live footage, uh, almost turning Copenhagen into the sort of global speaker's corner uh, for China. Sadly, uh, Ai Weiwei has now been sort of uh, uh, silenced, like this sort of critical voice of China has actually been uh, captured by the, by the government and has been missing for the last uh, uh, six weeks. But sort of back in the, in the pavilion, you can say, like to sum it up, what we wanted to try to do uh, was to show um, how essentially sustainable life can be more fun than normal life. And as a sort of litmus test, this is the first image we published of the, of the uh, Danish pavilion. If you sort of notice the red uh, rectangle, uh, this is the first image, or one of the first images, published of Iron Man 2, showing Tony Stark's Mad Science Expo. Uh, and if you sort of compare the two uh, rectangles, uh, this is Hollywood and this is Shanghai. Um, so first of all, like this is a this is big business. It's America, the land of litigation. We should uh, we should sue them and get rich. Um, but then we thought sort of. Um, uh, Coco Chanel said that copying is the highest form of compliment. And if, you know, Hollywood starts ripping off sustainable architecture to uh, portray science fiction, it could be a sign that we're moving towards uh, hedonistic uh, sustainability. So sort of a- another sort of idea we've been working on to try to sort of bring this idea of how, like, architecture and design can actually sort of uh, uh, be more sort of environmentally aware but also increase uh, life quality. Uh, starting a project we call The Mountain in Copenhagen. It's essentially a combination of a big parking building uh, and an apartment building. But the parking creates a man-made mountain that lifts all the apartments up in the sun and the view, uh, creating these sort of uh, houses with gardens, but in the middle of the, of the dense city. Um, we call this idea architectural alchemy because it's this idea that by mixing traditional ingredients like parking and apartments, you can actually create, if, if not gold, then uh, at least sort of added value. Um, we took this idea one step further in a, uh, in a project in Copenhagen, where sort of by mixing um, shops and offices, uh, townhouses and apartments, putting them in a sort of stack where they occupy their favorite position, distorting the block to sort of maximize views for the apartments and access to sunlight, uh, we created this sort of a building we call the Eight House, named after its shape. And, um, and this sort of approach doesn't only allow us to optimize the individual position uh, of the different parts of the program, like leaving shops and, and offices on the street, lifting the townhouses with gardens up into the sunshine, um, but it also um, sort of allows uh, public life, which is traditionally restricted to occurring on street level, to actually invade the three-dimensional space of the urban block, so the eight house in Copenhagen is not, uh, you know, a two-dimensional facade design or even a three-dimensional architectural object. It's sort of a three-dimensional urban condition that allows, uh, you know, uh, public life the possibility for spontaneous social encounters to actually invade the, the normally private space of the urban block and, and reach the, the penthouse of the, of the city. So um, this, uh, this building is, uh, is at the edge of, uh, of Copenhagen. Uh, basically at the city limits, so you have this sort of clash of, uh, of life forms. The, the sort of the last idea you can say, like in the eight house, um, it's essentially like a private developer project built for like private apartments and townhouses, uh, but somehow it has this sort of generosity towards the city that it invites public life into it. Um, this sort of idea of public participation 
uh, we took one step further in a project we did for the new city hall in Tallinn. We thought that instead of having this sort of traditional dichotomy of the politicians inside and the public outside, we would sort of hover the city hall uh, above the ground, allowing the, uh, the public to invade uh, the, the ground floor in the, what we call the public service marketplace, where they can interact with the public servants and even sort of see the, the politicians at work. Uh, we called it the public village, because it's essentially like uh, an accumulation of all of the different departments have their own building. They sort of, uh, co, uh, they sort of merge to form a, a sort of a single consolidated village. In one place, we invited the people of Thailand to sort of uh, access the roof and enjoy the panorama of the, of the surrounding city. Um, and finally, in the master plan, they wanted uh, a tower. Because like in Europe, it, it's hard to imagine a city hall without a tower. So we thought, like, what are we going to do with the tower? We thought, like, why don't we place the city council inside the tower? So we created this incredibly generous space for political reflection. The ceiling is made as a giant mirror so that when the politicians have to make difficult decisions, all they have to do is look up, and they get this sort of periscopial overview of the city that they're actually messing with. But, uh, but as a sort of side effect, when the angry citizens gather to demonstrate... Uh, they get this sort of perfect insight. They can see, you know, if, if politicians are missing, if they're sleeping, if they're playing Angry Birds. Um, so uh, we called it the, the democratic periscope that combines political overview with public insight. And, uh, and to our extreme luck, the city council liked the idea, and we're now building this sort of, uh, sort of uh, architectural realization of radical political uh, transparency. So uh, these sort of Three ideas we try to bring together in, uh, in what is uh, until now our sort of uh, uh, biggest, uh, uh, biggest project. It sort of combines the sort of idea of hedonistic sustainability with the sort of architectural alchemy and the sort of notion of public participation. Um, it's located within a master plan. We were commissioned by the ten municipalities of metropolitan Copenhagen to do a plan according to like along the a new uh, train line uh, that would connect all of the municipalities. But we proposed uh, in return to say, why, why just focus on, on Copenhagen or even Denmark? Right on the other side of the Øresund uh, waters, we have Sweden, southern Sweden. Uh, it's sort of the, the most densely populated and most sort of economically active region in Scandinavia. And by adding a simple three-mile bridge, we could actually connect it all into a sort of a, a single binational metropolitan region where no area is further away than 40 minutes by public transportation. And it wouldn't just be like uh, an infrastructure for, uh, for public transportation. It would also be infrastructure for waste management, for water management, for, for energy, combining a smart grid that combines hydroelectricity from Sweden with wind power from, uh, from Denmark. Um, it connects all of the most prosperous businesses in the entire region. And uh, sort of by sort of merging it and making this sort of binational uh, master plan, uh, we also introduced pink in a flag uh, for the first time. Um, it has exactly the same size as the San Francisco Bay Area, so it is actually a quite likely uh, sort of a regional planning size just because of the national boundaries. Uh, this sort of holistic perspective has never been applied. And our idea was to, instead of like focusing on the individual infrastructures, to actually merge it all so that uh, the train line is also the first phase densification of the downtown areas. The train really stops at the heart of the different neighborhoods. Um, and finally, since we're combining uh, industry, commerce, and residential, 
we were proposing that perhaps the excess energy from the power production of the industry could become like uh, human programs like uh, thermal baths. So this, this could sound like sort of uh, science fiction or the Jetsons, uh, but sort of to take it uh, to something really tangible, uh, this is going to be the first building that we're completing within the Loop City. Um, it's a waste-to-energy plant in, uh, in Copenhagen. We only landfill 4% of our waste. Uh, as an example, in Chicago, it's 85%. Uh, 42% gets recycled, and 54% is essentially used as fuel to create heat and, uh, and electricity. 97% uh, of the ho homes in Copenhagen have district heating, so they don't spend any energy on heating in a very cold country. They get it all as excess heat from the power production. And, the, and essentially, they form this loop that the people give their trash to the insulation plant, and they get it back as power. So as a thumb rule, three kilos of household trash turns into four hours of electricity and five hours of heating. Uh, and just to give you an idea of this resource, uh, one ton of waste is almost two barrels of oil. But essentially, this is, this is a power plant like any other. It's a, a big, ugly, boxy factory that uh, casts shadows on the neighbors and, and block the view. So the city wanted, because it's located in downtown Copenhagen, to somehow try to make it beautiful. It should be uh, a gift to the city, said the CEO of the, of the plant. Um, so this is not only going to be the biggest building in Copenhagen, it's also going to be the tallest it's going to be more than 350 feet tall. Um, it's located right in the middle of the historical city. You can see that's the opera, the Royal Theatre downtown, and that's where it's going. It's right next to the sort of Copenhagen Marina. And right in front of it, there's something called the Copenhagen Cable Track, which is a, a track that pulls uh, wakeboarders and water skiers around in this sort of perpetual loop of, uh, of water fun. And, and speaking of skiing... Copenhageners love skiing, uh, but unfortunately, Copenhagen is flat as a pancake. Uh, we have the snow, but we don't have the hills. So we happily go by hours uh, on buses to the south of Sweden. Um, so we thought, um, you know, if, if Copenhagen doesn't have uh, mountains, at least we have mountains of trash. Um, so why don't we, like, transplant one of the Swedish ski slopes and put it on the roof of the, uh, of the factory? Uh, so essentially, we know the size of the, of the machines, uh, so we create this sort of minimum en envelope. Uh, they wanted to make a, a visitor center, which essentially is a place where school teachers drag the children to force them to listen to how trash turns into energy. Uh, instead, we propose to install an elevator that takes you to the roof, where you can choose between a green, a blue, and a black ski slope. <laughs> Um, and because it's man-made, we can make sure that it ends up at the foot of the elevator to create this sort of perpetual loop of, uh, of skiing. Miraculously, we, uh, we actually won the, the competition based on this idea. Um, the, the roof material is a form of uh, artificial uh, carpet that uh, all the rainwater that drops uh, on the mountain uh, can be sort of is collected and can be blowed out in these humidifiers that in the summer can actually create so little friction that with normal skiing equipment you can actually uh, ski, uh, creating this sort of nice uh, Brazilian hybrid of bikini skiing. Um, but, uh, but in the winter, we do have three to four months of frost and, uh, and snow. So uh, sort of uh, from 2015, you're going to have to look out for the Danish competitors in alpine skiing. Um, 
the, it, you know, originally the competition was to make the factory look good, so we also had to do a facade. We proposed to make it out of these giant planters made out of recycled plastics. Uh, the, the excess water runs through the facade, watering the plants, so that in the summer we create this sort of natural shade that, it, that turns the working space of the factory into this sort of nice, naturally illuminated and naturally ventilated workspace. Uh, at night you see the machines working inside the, the factory. Um, so you can say like the sort of initial vision of you know, trying to design our cities and buildings as ecosystems is quite close to materializing in this project because like not only locally does the sort of re reuse of, uh, of the water, the, the daylight, the natural ventilation, but also in a sort of more regional perspective together with Copenhagen and the rest of the Loop City, the plant actually forms an, an ecosystem. Um, as the last thing, they were imagining, they wanted some kind of a, a building integrated art project. And traditionally what you do is you hire some light artists to blow colored lights at the building at night. Um, we thought, why don't we play with the resources we have? This is going to be the cleanest waste to energy plant in the world. Uh, the smoke coming out of the chimney is completely non-toxic, but it still does contain some CO2, uh, a lot less than the current plant, but uh, it does contain some of it. Um, so we thought, like, why don't we design the mouth uh, of the chimney uh, in such a way that it sort of fills gradually with CO2, uh, and when it contains 100 kilos, it compresses and puffs a giant smoke ring. <laughs> so we, we, can, uh, we can play with it at night. Um, but, uh, of course, like, on one hand, we like it, because, like, it's almost like the... The, the ultimate artistic expression of hedonistic sustainability, you take the, the symbol of the problem, the pollution, the chimney, and, and turn it into something playful. Uh, but, uh, but more importantly, one of the main drivers of behavioral change is knowledge, that if people don't know, they can't act. Uh, and when my nephews ask me, you know, what's a ton of CO2, I have to say, uh, I don't have a clue. Uh, in 2015, I can tell them to count 10 smoke rings. Uh, and when they've counted 10 of them, we have just emitted one ton of CO2. So, um, so you can say, like, the, the waste to energy plan in Copenhagen is not only sort of economically and ecologically sustainable by turning waste into energy, it's also socially sustainable because it turns a power plant into a park and turns a flatland into sort of a, a man-made mountain for, for skiing. So um, as a last thing, you might object that this is something that can only happen in sort of a uh, sunny, semi-socialist, uh, sentimental Scandinavia. Um, but uh, just to wrap it up, uh, uh, recently we got approached by Durst Fetner, uh, residential of, uh, of Manhattan, uh, to look at this site on the west side waterfront. It's quite far away from the nearby parks. Um, it's right next to the Helena, a building owned by our client, uh, named after his daughter. Um, and normally residential in the area looks like this, sort of extruded boxes. We thought... Why don't we, you know, having spent 10 years of my career as an architect trying to escape the tyranny of the Copenhagen courtyard as a typology, we thought that maybe in Manhattan this idea of creating an urban oasis at the heart of the block could be interesting. If you like, the Copenhagen courtyard is at the architectural scale, what Central Park is at an urban scale, a, a human habitat surrounded by a, a dense wall of, of people. So we ask ourselves, what happens when you combine a skyscraper with a courtyard? Essentially, what would a, a court scraper look like? Um, so first we place the courtyard next to the Helena. We try to preserve all of its views to be a good neighbor, but also because it is our client's building. Um, and then in the northeast corner to create density and views, we lift it up to 450 feet. 
creating this sort of uh, warped perimeter block that has views and, and, uh, and sunshine from the, from the west side. And what happens is that you can say traditionally uh, perimeter blocks or courtyards are secrets kept for the tenants. In this case, it really becomes the main facade of the building towards the highway, almost showing how the rejuvenation of the waterfront moves into the city fabric itself. And the, the warped geometry also brings daylight to the, to the streetscape. And finally, the, uh, all of the apartments are rotated towards the view, creating this sort of uh, pattern of, uh, of balconies, but also allowing the residents to recognize their own apartment almost as a building within the building. Um, and of course, people living uh, next to the roof have these nice views of the Hudson. So uh, because of the incredible asymmetry, the, the courtyard really goes from 42 inches to 400 feet and, and back down again. So um, this has been sort of uh, passed forward. It has been sort of uh, well-received and, and according to plan, and, and sometimes even in architecture, things happen uh, according to plan. We should uh, be breaking ground uh, uh, the 1st of September this year. So... Um, So, so you can see, like some of the sort of uh, some of the sort of architectural evolution we've been conducting in Scandinavia is now sort of starting to crossbreed with uh, sort of New York typologies. To finish off, this is what it could look like driving down the West Side Highway in uh, in four years. Yeah, I'm out at Brooklyn, now I'm down in Tribeca, right next to the Nero, but I'll be hood forever, I'm the new Sinatra, and since I made it here, I can make it anywhere, yeah, they love me everywhere, I used to cop in Harlem, all of my Dominicanos right there up on Broadway, pull me back to that McDonald's, took it to my stash spot, 560 State Street, catch me in the kitchen like a Simmons with them pastry, Statue of Liberty, long live the world trade, long live the king, yo, I'm from the Empire State.